3: This is serious business
4: here, man. We've got a mission. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DiRigatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Codd. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today, Sound Opinions has got an interview exclusive with Julian Casablancas, lead singer of The Strokes, done the day their third album was released, First Impressions of Earth, and a couple hours before the first show of a Blitzkrieg American small venue tour. Blitzkrieg, I love that
0: word, Jim. Great word. Yeah, hype generator. They're trying to get the buzz generated, (laughs) Yeah. Great word It also applies to Mary J. Blige's new record It blitzed the charts A couple of weeks ago 700,000 copies From the Queen of Hip Hop Soul How good is this record really? We're going to let you know Later on in the show And you're also going to have A Desert Island Jukebox pick But first as always We've got some music news
4: New Stones, pathetically trying to sound like old stones, <laughs> referencing Little Red Rooster on Rough Justice.
0: Things have not been so rough for the Rolling Stones. $162 million dollars richer, the Rolling Stones. Here's a band that needs no more of your money, but they got it this year. Biggest grossing tour of 2005. People talk about the music industry is in the toilet. It's not making any more money. Record sales are down 11%. Not in a live concert arena. They're spending more money on concerts in 2005 than they have in the entire history you, now you of love, concert music. You, you love this
4: year-end concert number story. You live for this. Well, I, I, think I don't know if I b- live for it, but Wait, I think Were you on the business desk earlier in your
0: career or yes, what? Yes, maybe. You, well, you my wife, my wife, you know, she's got a business background. I, I pay homage to her with, okay. this, with this story every year. That's how I do it. $3.1 billion in concert industry bucks spent in 2005, up from $2.8 billion in 2004. And the Stones topped the list. What, is that net of $162 million they raised? in? That's uh, gross revenue, $162 million gross. to but go it's see revealing. the Rolling Stones. Because uh, the average concert ticket was $135. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the average ticket price for a Rolling Stones show. And if you saw them at Soldier Field, you were a city block away well, remember, from that stage. Well, remember, they were charging up to $450 for the so called Golden Circle. Yes, yeah, uh, the, yeah. those penthouse seats on the stage, you know. Where well, you got uh, to look at their saggy butts. Not to mention, all you saw was their backs. Not to mention the Ticketmaster fees. So yeah, you were looking which at the Jim? 25. No, if you were was in, examining the Stones. If you butts. were in the $450
4: yeah. VIP hose bag yeah. <laughs> behind the stage thing, you were watching their, their rears the whole night.
0: Yeah, well you deserve to see the Stones fannies if you antied up $450 bucks for that. For who that else show. is on the list? U uh, two's number two. The U two tour pulled in $138 million. 138 at, an average 9. T- at an average ticket price of nearly a hundred dollars. And how much of that did Bono give to starving Africans? <laughs> I'd rather that they took the example of Green Day. Now, here's a band that finished number 12 on the tour list for 2005 with nearly $35 million raked in for the tour. But their average ticket price, get this, 38 bucks, considerably lower than just about any other band on the charts. I mean, people don't realize how big of a band and how big of a year uh, Green Day had in 2005. No, they,
4: they were huge. Unfortunately, that tour was really disappointing. It's
3: just the of
4: I saw them at the Old state Arena in the middle of the year, uh, and I've seen that band be great, and they just sucked. I mean, they, it was as if you were seeing Motley
0: Crue. There yeah, they were explosions. They, they w- sort of took on that, the, you know, the, they started doing We Are the Champions, that big Queen anthem that they, they sort of made it their own. They yeah. did turn into sort of an it's arena been the rock downfall band. of many a poor yeah. young punk. Yeah. Well, speaking of Motley Crue, they were right ahead of Green Day on, on the chart at number 11 at uh, nearly $40 million. That's pathetic. I mean, the names on this list, I mean, McCartney, Eagles, Elton John, Neil Diamond Jimmy Buffett I mean we're talking about a lot of baby boomers order.
4: And, and well the thing that's distressing is that they're eventually going to die <laughs> and then who besides Green Day and Coldplay Coldplay was on the list at uh, uh, more than $24 million and uh, a $40 ticket price so like Green Day you know, as these things go, a fairly reasonable ticket price and
0: doing good business. But you don't. Almost have to everybody else was of, of of the baby boom generation. Exactly, and you don't even have to go on the road anymore. You can just sit down in Vegas and, like Celine Dion, charge an average of one hundred thirty six dollars a show and rake in eighty one million dollars as she did in two thousand five. She's on the list, and she never even never even left Vegas. Left Vegas. Just stayed in Vegas. Same thing with Barry Manilow for the most part. Did a bunch of Vegas shows at one hundred fifty four bucks a pop and made twenty two point seven million. Looks like So here is a trend. I see the Stones, U2, McCartney. <laughs> all, their Vegas. Vegas years are just around the corner. Well, That's where Keep the room them there, and then
4: we don't have to be bothered with them. Looks like we made it. All right, we got some more music news about one of our favorite rock personalities. It's a sad story. And every time we uh, try to uh, put a Courtney Love moratorium on news stories, she, she won't let us. She won't let <laughs> us. She won't go away. She, she just won't go away. Now, this comes from the New York Post. So mind you, we have to take it with something of a grain of salt. But apparently, Courtney has been out there trying to peddle her share of the Nirvana music catalog with a starting price of $100 million. because, as we said, uh, I think at some point in the middle of the last year, she's broke. She, she can't pay her lawyers. She's getting sued by the lawyers who helped her out, a couple of different law firms that helped her out of a couple of different legal jams. She never paid them. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's mortgaging her house. She's in, uh, just, just in a horrible state of affairs. And the thing that's particularly sad about this is that she spent a lot of time fighting in court To recover uh, her share and and for her daughter, Frances Bean, uh, of the Nirvana catalog, that there was an inequitable distribution that as uh, Cobain's heirs, you know, uh, that, that she deserved a bigger portion and she said she was fighting this fight for her daughter. And she got a lot of bad press for that. I did a lot of reporting. I spent I spent a weekend out there in, in Los Angeles listening to her talk about this. And she had some legitimate arguments, you know, basically that the, the Nova Selleck and Grohl didn't write any of these songs. And yet they were each getting one third of the catalog and that the control should go to the guy who was the primary songwriter. And Cobain wrote 98.5 percent of Nirvana's songs. So, uh, you know, she won that case, uh, took her lumps. And now she's looking to pedal, if you believe the New York Post, her share, which is, I think would be the most tragic sale of a rock catalog since the Beatles lost control of their songs to Michael Jackson. Right. Well, you know, and, and Jackson was suddenly selling Revolution to Nike. Smells like teen spirit. Cobain wrote that in response to a deodorant ad, if yeah. you remember. You know, and, and so, so where on earth could we see Nirvana songs popping up? I mean, that would just be the most horrible thing. You know, You have to believe that if Courtney succeeds in selling off the Cobain chunk
0: of the Nirvana catalog, bad things are going to follow. You know what? There's no way she wins on this. Um, first of all, there's going to be a lot of ill will tossed her way. And history has proven that these songwriting, these publishing catalogs only accrue in value as time goes on. So if she's selling it now, I mean, God knows how many millions of dollars she's going to be kissing off in the future. Not to yeah. mention Francis Bean, you know, her daughter's uh, future. I mean, as these things go, as these these
4: personalities go, she's only apparently three hundred sixty eight hundred thousand dollars in the hole. So, you know, I mean, really, what that's one night's take for Charlie Watts on the Stones tour, right? Big arena like, tour. Somebody bail Courtney oh, out really, so she doesn't on. have to sell her husband's music. No kidding.
1: We've
4: got a sad story to wrap up with. The obituary of a soul and R&B
0: giant. Yeah, that's the four-octave range of uh, Lou Rawls on his biggest hit, uh, 1976, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. Even in the disco era, Even kowtowing to disco, Lou Rawls had his own distinctive style. Don't you think, Greg, that he is one
4: of those singers that uh, frustrates music writers, uh, perhaps lesser music writers, not you and me. (laughs) But, but, you know, there's just, I was scanning the many obituaries, New York Times and all the other ones uh, in print, Velvety. It's like the only adjective anybody can come up with to describe that voice. Yeah. It's one of those voices that is just so wonderfully smooth that it, it becomes hard to write about.
0: It's plush, baby. It's a plush voice. And uh, people said he could sing Sinatra. In fact, he did an entire album of songs associated with Frank Sinatra. You know, he did the Supper Club Soul thing. He was a smoothie. But I think the thing about Lou Rawls, who died at the age of 72 this week is that he had an earthiness, a grit to him. The thing that I think was his signature besides that four octave range was those uh, introductions to the, a lot of the songs. Those hip hop styled monologues. I mean before there was hip hop there was Lou Rawls's monologues introducing these songs. You listen to a song like Natural Man where he sets it up and brings in this dramatic element to it before the song even begins
1: and you are sucked in before the melody even takes hold. You know... That was a time that if someone told you to do something, you did it. Bam! Right on. And there were no questions asked. It was yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. You never said no. <laughs> oh, but things are changing, folks. Yeah, it's a new day, baby. A brand new day. And folks now want to take their lives into their own hands and make their own choices. No longer do they want to go along with the program because everybody says right, see Folks just want to do their own thing. Now, you know what I mean? Different stroke for different folk. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I don't want no gold box for working 50 years from nine to buy.
0: He was rapping before there was such a thing as rap. Yeah. Um, and he was laying it down and talking about his childhood, talking about his upbringing, you know, with the hawk, you know whistling down the corner. The the
4: hawk being the the, the
0: bitingly cold wind of Chicago. Because he grew up on the south side. Childhood friends with Sam Cooke. Yes, he was. And uh, he brought that grittiness to everything he did in addition to the smoothness. Uh, As you mentioned, he was a childhood friend of Sam Cooke's. When you hear that classic Sam Cooke song, Bring It On Home To Me, who's Sam Cooke trading vocals with there? It's it's his childhood friend Lou Rawls.
3: If you ever... Change your mind. Go about leaving.
0: from his sort of apprenticeship he was second fiddle to cook for the most part and then went on to his own solo career and really established his persona in the uh, the mid to late 60s and went on to have hit after hit yeah through the 70s. But a presence
4: up until the end. He sang uh, the national anthem, was it? At the White Sox I think it was World God, Series game. He sang God, God, God Bless America, America
0: at the uh, White Sox game. And what made the performance so amazing, other than the fact that the vocal performance was so great, was that he was hiding the fact uh, that he was extremely ill. Y- you realize that the man was suffering from uh, brain and lung cancer. Yeah, He was in obviously in some remission at that point, but this was only a few short months ago that he was giving this and still st- sounding a utterly commanding performance in front of a national audience. And
4: perhaps of more relevance to our kids, yours and mine, uh, as well as many others, was a voice in the Rugrats movie towards w- the end, whatever
0: you in- needed to pay the bills. but the thing is the music still holds up amazingly well. You listen to the opening few minutes of Dead End Street, I think his first signature song, and you get a sense of what kind of childhood this guy had he 's telling his story even though these songs sort of had a universal appeal, a universal message, it's really him personalizing his art in a way that few soul singers did. Well, here it is. Lou Rawls' Rest in Peace on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public
4: Radio.
1: I was born in a city that they call the Windy City. They call it the Windy City because of the Hawk. The Hawk, the almighty Hawk, Mr. Wind. Takes care of plenty of business around winter time. The place that I lived in was on a street that uh, happened to be one of the dead-end streets, where there was nothing to block the wind, the elements. Nothing to buffer them for, I mean, to keep them from knocking my bed down, Jim. I mean, really, stocking it to me. When the boiler would bust and the heat was gone, Jim, I had to get full dressed before I could go to bed. Of course, I couldn't put on my goulashes because they had buckles on them, and my folks didn't play that. They said, don't you tear up my bed clothes with some goulashes off. But I was fortunate. As soon as I was big enough to get a job and save enough money, get a ticket, catch anything, I split. I said, one day I'm going to return, and I'm going to straighten it all out. And I'm about ready to go back now. So I thought I'd tell you about it. Uh, they say this is a big, rich town, but I live in the poorest City without a heart. I learned to fight before I was six. The only way I could get along. Uh, when you're raised on a dead in street, you gotta be tough and strong. Now, all the guys are no getting into that type of I'm going to push my way out of here Even though I can't say job I'm gonna save my dough get away from here I ain't gonna come back no more I'm tired of a day
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio with Greg Cott and Jim DeRogatis. Later on in the show, we're going to review this new Mary J. Blige record that has sold over 700,000 copies in its first week. There's also going to be a Desert Island jukebox from Jim. But next, a review of the new Strokes album and an interview with Strokes singer Julian Casablancas.
4: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Diergardis. My partner is Greg Koch. We're going to talk about this new Strokes album, much anticipated third
0: effort from this New York City quintet, First Impressions of Earth. A lot riding on this record, Jim. You had a chance to sit down with uh, Julian Casablancas the singer. Julian's a hard interview. I could have used your help and you were missing in action. Yeah, I was running around with a bunch of fifth-grade girls in a in a high school, Cold High School gym. Yeah, uh, that's but what you're uh, saying. you know, coaching them. Here's Jim in the studio with The Strokes' Julian Casablancas, hours before The Strokes' first show of 2006 at the Park West. Thanks for coming in here, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having
4: me. Well, it's an exciting night because you guys are doing one of these mini club tours, underplaying, playing smaller venues, launching the new record. Record's out today. First gig of the U.S. jaunt to this tour is tonight. And so we're, we're happy to have you in Chicago. Why Chicago? Did it just work out that way? Or is there a strong fan base here?
2: I don't know why it started with Chicago, actually. Um,
4: well, we'll say it's because we love you more here.
2: Sure. Why not? <laughs> you, you I, I rolled your fight you on that.
4: You rolled your eyes when I said the record's out today. And in fact, First Impressions of Earth, the third album from Strokes, is just I in did. record stores today. Yeah, yeah. But did you not even know that? Because it feels like it's been out for a while. You guys floated it on the internet.
2: Um, no. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the thing is, I don't really understand. I'm not really... I don't. I don't understand how much... The album is out, you know. I can't tell yeah. if everyone knows it or if only a few people know it. Because to you, if, it's old news. Well, n- yes and no. I mean, I'm I'm sort of nervous, and you know, I walked by Virgin in New York yesterday, and it was like I saw the album was out. You know, because they they stay open on Tuesdays for like yeah. for late releases, and you have butterflies in your stomach because you don't know if it's gonna be like still, a mega flop or after you know, all this, you're still worried about this crap. No, I, I mean, I don't really – I'm not always in a state of concern, mm-hmm. um, but I can't analyze our situation really well. you know. Yeah. So I try not to think about it every now and then I'm forced to.
4: I read a quote by Nick where he was talking about working on the new record with uh, David Kahn and said, uh, you know, we, we wanted somebody to kick our, our butts, that but it was a little bit like being at, at work or at school, somebody yelling at us, making us work harder. And, I mean, to me it was like, wait a minute, these guys are some, one of the hardest working bands I've ever interviewed.
2: Yeah, when he was recording instruments, he definitely wanted, like, you know, he had an ideal take and a perfect take that he wanted to get out of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it's not, it's it's really not like that was, that wasn't the idea behind working with David. I mean. Mm-hmm.
4: Why d- why did you turn to him? Gordon Raphael had been almost like the seventh stroke. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, that's it funny. Uh well, we we started with him, you know, we were, we just, I think we wanted to get to the next level and we felt a little bit sort of crippled by our lack of technical knowledge, you know. David really came in, in my mind, almost like as an engineer and, uh, you know.
4: He's worked on some great records, you know, Paul McCartney and, uh, you yeah, know, I mean, Tony Bennett. But, it, but were you guys well, aware? that's not why, that's not why. I it mean, nothing to do with it. I was wondering if you were aware of his resume.
2: I I didn't even know he was really a producer, you know? Mm. I mean, as we started to work with him, I heard The Bengals, I heard Sublime, and uh, and I even heard Sugar Ray. It wasn't really, it wasn't uh, that's sort of not where our minds were. At. It wasn't like we were trying to find a sound. It was mm-hmm. more like, well, if we want to sound like Queen, you know, how, mm-hmm. how can we do that? And to not be able to do that was frustrating, I think. You wanted somebody who who could do anything that you wanted and take you any place you wanted to go. Pretty much, mm. you know. I mean, I love Gordon and I love his the voodoo that he brought to us and he gave us in many ways our sound. So it wasn't any kind of I didn't I didn't want to you know yeah I definitely don't want to be ungrateful to him in any way. It was I think you know so basically what happened is that we we started to try to make it work as a team, like mm-hmm. Gordon and David. But uh it did not work. <laughs> it mm. did not work. I mean uh for a while I didn't even I didn't know who we were gonna work with, you know. It wasn't yeah. really going well. And then sort of we sort of had a minor breakthrough where, you know, the sound was like, Wow, finally it sounds sort of how I wish it sounded. This is
4: before or after David came on board?
2: This was like three and a half months after working with David and Gordon together. Yeah. And having sort of an awkward situation actually to be mm-hmm. honest. But in the end I mean it ended uh you know I hope amicably you know I mean uh I know we left on nice terms I hope you know we're still friendly with uh everyone involved
4: Let's play something from the record um you want to set up one of your favorite tracks is there one that you're particularly on this day and this time God I'm so Or I'm happy at this. to do it Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do it Well want we play Juice Boxes obviously the single how did this tune
2: come together This is one that I was almost didn't even show anyone because I just thought no one would like it Mm. for some reason. I don't know how it became the single still to this day. It's a mystery to me. I think when the when a friend of ours, actually uh, the radio guy at a record label, who's one of the coolest guys there, when he said he wanted that to be the single and thought he could make it, you know. get played in the radio i was like wow really sure go for it you know yeah <laughs> i usually they want they choose one it's like oh man no please don't do that <laughs> to us <laughs> but you were okay with this joke yeah i was like you know for me I had the weirder the better you know so yeah 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 <laughs>
4: Fox by The Strokes. I'm Jim DeRogatis of The Sun-Times. I'm sitting with Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. What did you want to accomplish with this album, Julian? I mean, it, it seems to me you guys are, are masters of minimalism. You know, you, you have this sound and you do an incredible amount with very little. Every gesture counts, every guitar line and every, every rhythm. Much like the White Stripes, who I think are your real peers. You know, you're always getting compared to these new wave of new wave bands. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Jack White, is a genius. I don't know if you're a fan or not, but, but you know, in terms of uh, doing so much with such little ingredients, and on the last album, he brings in just a little bit of marimba, you know, and here, you, you know, you have this track, which I love, Ask Me Anything, which for the first time is kind of a arrhythmic, not focusing on the rhythm and those guitars, and you're singing over a Mellotron. If people don't know, it's this great 70s keyboard pre-synthesizer that, that all the sounds of the orchestra are on tapes. You're
2: actually hitting a key and it's playing a tape inside the machine. Yeah, a tape of uh, in this case a cello. But it sounds really bizarre because it's obviously a cello wouldn't sound like that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a cool instrument. There was one we were doing overdubs uh, upstate in the Catskills for a week just to h- hear it in a different place, you know, and some mixing stuff. And they had a Mellotron there, and that was one of the last songs I wanted to record. And uh, But it was sort of just starting in the works. Yeah, I already had the chorus worked out, and then Nick was playing playing around the Mellotron and then sang over it, and that sort of created the verse. And then we just decided to do the whole song on the Mellotron. Hostile Indians, we name
4: Did you want to kind of vary the sonic palette with this record?
2: Yeah, I like rhythm. I just I don't know how to spell it. I don't... Uh... <laughs> the Y is hard to place. Yeah, the H always gets me. Uh, the, I think um, I don't want to be uh, confined, you know. I don't know what we do with guitars and, you know, but, uh, you know, just to, just to jump into, like, you know, let's let's do this all on violins. I mean, it's so risky and you can, so many mm. so many ways you can go wrong. To mm-hmm. do it right is very, you have to, you know, it's not, you can't just throw in different instruments because it, you know, you play a song on the guitar and you play it on the piano and it's a different sound. Completely different, yeah. And yeah. you you still write primarily on guitar
4: when you sit down and write, right? Uh,
2: guitar and keyboard, actually. Mm. Um, I, It's just like, yeah, I mean, there's, you'll play something that sounds amazing cool on a piano and then it'll sound totally ridiculous on a guitar you
4: mm-hmm. know? what about let's play another tune um, Vision of Division uh, I'll, let me lay the rock critic thing on you I mean to me it seems like uh, again the guitars and the strokes have always been about control and, and there's a looseness to Vision of Division that I've always thought it, uh, they're, 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 this seems kind of fresh to me There's kind of, kind of almost like television live or, or just a guitar blowout
2: Of division is about. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's about uh, things falling apart. Uh, it could be about you know America, or it could be about our band. I mean, you know, mm. you know, sometimes you don't you don't know why you like it, but like I'll, I'll be specific about meanings without even fully understanding them. Maybe just knowing what where what I what I don't want to say and how I want to say and what I want to say and then. And then sometimes it sort of all comes together maybe later on because once you're so into it, you know, in, in it. And also the big thing about the songs and the meaning is a lot of songs I have the whole thing worked out. I'm I'm actually working on working on songs a lot differently nowadays because the thing is you'll have a, a meaning all, uh, you know, it'll all be drawn out head to toe. The, it, it, it finishes in the end conclusion, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. It all makes sense. It rhymes. It's great. But then you sing it and it sounds like shit. Mm-hmm. And it just it just sounds like it just sounds like uh so so phony, you know, yeah, so you gotta change it around, and then a sentence that actually you know has a deeper meaning will sound completely corny, but then you sort of lighten it up, and then uh, it sounds like very cool and is much more poignant, you know yeah, so basically, the meanings change as you're recording them.
4: You are listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm talking to Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. The first time I saw you was at, at The Empty Bottle, but the most memorable time, or maybe it was actually before, South by Southwest, I remember when you guys played, and this was nine months before the album came out. It was a really small venue, and this is, 2001 before the first record I remember this typical record industry weasel up front and he's just looking at his watch the whole time like he had better places to be than seeing the strokes and you just jumped off the stage at one point got in his face and said don't you look at your watch while I'm singing you know and I just thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen it, it, and there was an anger you know which you didn't expect from you because you don't usually seem angry are you still pissed off about things are you still channel that in your music
2: do you I tried to quiet the storm inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I try not to be unfair.
4: <laughs> there can be these explosions of of uh, just like the stroke music can, you know, it can be that speeding subway train, and then all of a sudden you don't think it can get any faster; it can go to the next level.
2: Well, being on stage is somewhat unpredictable, and uh, and when you're trying to create music, you're try- you're hoping that the listener to, is he perceives it as something that's unpredictable and volatile and and still even, them.
4: even after 500 shows and 5 years it's still you know when you walk out there tonight there's still going to be that element of I don't know what's going to happen here
2: I don't know <laughs> I don't know I mean it's sort of like a dueling thing inside of you cuz part of you wants to feel confident and know exactly what you're going to do every step of the way but then the other part is sort of a bumbling like fool that can't put it together, and uh, and that might be what's endearing, you know. So I I don't. You want to be, you want to be perfect, but uh, you you sort of a- anticipate subconsciously stumbling. So I don't know how to how to explain it clearer than that. <laughs>
4: uh huh. All right, that's that's fair enough. And and I think you have to be as tight a band as the Strokes are in order to to leave things open to that sort of chaos.
2: Well the funny thing is when we started I I thought we were going to jam on stage. Mm-hmm. I mean I thought also one of the reasons why I didn't want to play an instrument on stage is cuz I I thought it would you know if I wanted to just make stuff up, you know what I mean like a, like a, like when you know Pearl Jam when you just like sing stuff at the end of songs. I yeah. mean sometimes I think it became a little more sort of uh, routine but uh, it just seemed like sometimes they were just making stuff up you know yeah but see the velvet underground jam too and they were y- you were a huge fan
4: and there were jams i mean you listen to 1969 live and the jam quote unquote on like something like what goes on now that's my idea of jamming cuz it never loses the primal pulse you know
2: yeah well i, I like i mean i like like if it's just you know a uh, solo that lasts 10 minutes yeah you want to blow your brains out but if it's just you know, just a weird new thing, and you start making it up, and you start making up a cool singing part with weird lyrics at a weird time while someone's playing a weird thing. I, I, that's how I thought it was going to sort of happen, but it but that doesn't happen. Does not happen. No, no, <laughs> it there's happen. no jam in the stroke. There's no. There's a no jamming rule. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, enforced strictly by Albert. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh See,
4: that's why I thought Vision of
2: Division. I mean, it sounded like a jam to me a little jammy. Well, I mean, we, you know, we we mess around sometimes in the studio. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're not like, uh, you know, we're not that serious. You know, we're actually pretty, you know, sort of goofy people. Thank so, you, Julian. It's been a complete pleasure having uh, you here on Sound of yeah. and uh, nice you, talking know, to you
4: Cots losing out. I think, I think you know what I think it is? What, I he's think,
2: coaching? Are you serious about he, that? He's
4: coaching his girls' basketball team, well, but he couldn't... That's nice. He's helping out, sort of. Yeah, right. I am, But, you know, it's like,
0: you know... I, I should know. support your friend. Julian Casablanca, son, there is an upstanding individual. He has my back. Unlike you, dear guys, you should have been standing up for me. I should be doing this show with him. Yeah, because you left me on my
4: own to interview this guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, where were you? Just because
0: we had to work 20 hours that day. We had to be at the concert that night. Yep. No excuse. We both ended up at the same place, uh, Park West Stroke Show... But we really need to talk about this album. I think Julian revealed a few things about that record that were of interest to his fans. First and foremost, why the decision to work with a producer like David Kahn, one of the biggest hit makers in the business. Right, well, and as you heard... A guy who has worked with, you know, people like Cher. Kahn's resume is ridiculous. Tony Bennett to Cher to Paul McCartney.
4: For Paul McCartney, Mm. he did the Live in Russia album. And did nothing but record McCartney playing a bunch of 50s covers on stage in the in the USSR. That was the approach I think he took to the Strokes record. I don't think that there was a lot of production. I don't, I don't think
0: it's that... It's produced, and it's that over the top. They needed to stretch out. Um, The second album was seen as more of the same, except less. Not quite as good as the first album. It only sold half a million copies. Repeating the formula. Right, as
4: opposed to the platinum selling Is This It, the 2001 debut.
0: You know, and the lean, mean, uh, guitar bass, drums formula, that's good only if you've got great songs. And I think the Strokes, if there is one inconsistency here, is they write some really great songs, but they also write some filler. The first two albums, I think the main virtue there was they were very short. They were both under 40 minutes. Between the two of them, they don't equal one side of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, (laughs) the double CD (laughs) by Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, that's true. This is a minimalist band, like I said. And that's a good thing. This album is nearly as long as those first two albums combined. We just played that song, Vision of Division, where you hear some guitar solos that... Remind me in not a good way of Eddie Van yeah, Halen. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's I read <laughs> that
4: crap in the Tribune. That's a cheap shot, uh, Greg. The band would be Television. That was what they were paying homage to. This band. I'm is, sorry. The Strokes are Television
0: steeped. didn't do Hammers On. That's, but that's not true. <laughs> Verlaine you know that? and Lloyd Weedley, were wheedley, all wheedley, of You're going to call that Television? You, you come go back on. and
4: listen to Marky Moon again. There's a lot of wheedling oh on Marky Moon. I, right. I think that uh, that's one of the experiments on this record. That's I, a uh, kind uh, way of saying it, Jim. An
0: experiment that doesn't work. It doesn't work.
4: That's not true. It's not true. You were you were on this record in the paper, and I'm surprised at you because I think it's beginning to end great. I don't think it's as great as 2001. Oh Is This It? I think it may even be better than Room on Fire,
0: the, the second album. I don't hear I don't hear the duff moments you're talking about. You know, I think there's some great songs. In fact, some of the best songs that they've ever written are on this record. I love Electric City Scape. I think mm-hmm. that's a terrific song, kind of an homage to uh, Phil Spector via Blondie with those big double-fisted drums that double-track guitar, Julian Casablanca's his vocals. You know, we talked about David Kahn's production. I think the thing that he has done and brought out on this record to the best effect is Casablancas is revealed as a damn good singer. Oh, he's always I don't been. Think, I think people realized how good of a singer he was because those vocals were so delivery. buried and distorted on their previous records. He's a very versatile singer. I don't think you knew that before, this record. I applaud that. I think there's some really strong songs, but I think end-to-end this record has got a lot of filler on it I would have taken out five songs. It would have been a much stronger record if it had been about six songs less than it is. Well, again, I think your shots that you took uh, when you reviewed it for The Trib were cheap. I mean, yeah, <laughs> they, they rip
4: off the Peter Gunn theme yeah, in, in Juice Box. They do. So what? That's like the most famous bass
0: in history. And then you, and you know, I don't need to hear it again from The Strokes, you know? I don't on. need to hear Barry Manilow's Mandy reprises a chorus for Razorblade. Hey, hey, listen,
4: buddy. You didn't hear this in the interview, but I asked Julian for a Desert Island Jukebox pick, and he gave me Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And he gave this long story about hearing a, a lady in a Spanish piano lounge play Moonlight Sonata. And it was only later till I figured out... Wait a minute, that guy was making a really sly comment on all the stuck-up rock critics who are making fun of him for allegedly nicking Mandy from Barry Manilow, and he went to Beethoven. I can't believe
0: that you're defending him for that. I mean, I expect more of this. There fan. is I nothing
4: expect... original in rock and roll. It's all been done before. You find something good,
0: steal it. You know it. what? They did something really cool on 15, a song like 15 Minutes, where he sort of has that sort of world-weary croon, almost like a you know Sinatra walking out of the bar at 2 a.m., and then that song picks up in the middle and becomes a classic Strokes double-time you know, finale song. That's a terrific example of where the Strokes could move after the first two records were kind of repeats of each other. But I'm sorry. Ripping off Manlow, ripping off Peter Gunn, those last three songs are really kind of weak. I think that record should have ended after the tenth song on this record, and uh, it would have been terrific. As it is, it's way too long. Well, I couldn't disagree
4: more. We rate records here on the Sound Opinion's patented rating scale of Buy It, burn it or trash it i have to say greg i think this is a buy it record like i said i think it's the strokes
0: second finest album of their still short career you know it's at best to burn it for me and i'll even tell you what songs to burn i think 15 minutes is a great track i think that little chamber pop instrumental that keyboard heavy little thing ask me anything is a terrific little little sidestep for them and I think the first song on the record, "You Only Live Once," I mean, the Cars wish they had written a song that good. That's an old criticism. That's what everybody said about "Room on Fire."
4: You know, you just, nothing you, wrong with just, being the
0: Cars, man. You're just devoted to
4: purposeful obscurantism. You know, wow. you're, you're going to champion <laughs> Nelly <Mackay's laughs> I Can't even record. pronounce that much you're less gonna, be that. I know it was a Village Voice moment for me. <laughs> the Strokes are too popular, so you've got to get snarky you about know, them I just, now I, and, and I compare them think- to Barry Madelow, And you don't even know you're Beethoven, and you think you play keyboards. Wow, you just missed the interview because you didn't want to face Julian into his face and tell that nice young boy you thought his album was mediocre and, wa- and watch him cry
0: because he cares what I think. I don't think so. He might have sludgy. He's from New York. Yeah, good, good for him. Like I said, four or five great songs on this record, and I think he's singing better than ever. But there's too many, too much filler on this record. <laughs>
4: Coming up in a little bit, I've got a Desert Island Jukebox pick, but next we are going to review Mary J Blige's 7th album, The Breakthrough, on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio.
3: Are you
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim Dirigatis. We're listening to a little bit of Mary J. Blige's seventh album, The Breakthrough. And what an album it is. The queen of hip-hop soul. She's been around since the early 90s and has had a tumultuous career. Lots of record sales, uh, over 13 million sold. A bunch of Grammy Awards, and uh, in the midst of all this, just every kind of drama known to man. (laughs) Broken (laughs) family, abusive relationships, drinking, drugging. I mean, Mary's been through it all. Despite claiming no more drama back in (laughs) 2001, the drama has has never relented. More wishful thinking on her part than anything else. But lately, she has uh, acquired some stability in her life. Uh, She is now married. Can Uh, do uh, Isaacs, uh, one of her producers. Exactly. She claims to be off drugs and drinks. She seems to be... uh, uh, a glow with kind of a newfound attitude about life, and hence the title The Breakthrough, like I've I've gone yeah. on to another phase in my life. But the one thing about Mary J. Blige is you can always count on, you know, it, it's never going to be, like, easy, you know? <laughs> it's never going to be easy, and that voice, that gritty voice, she really established a sound where she merged hip-hop and soul music in the early 90s, and that's really never left. She's a yeah. ghetto street thing that's in her music is always going to be there, and well. yet she's got this canon of a voice. It can be this
4: seductive cooing in your ear, and it can be this just gravelly kick into gonads, you know? Mm-hmm. Conads, you oh, know? Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that's special, Greg, about Mary J. Blige is her connection to her audience. I will never forget, you and I reviewed her a couple of years ago at the Rosemont Theater. There were 15,000 people there, and you and I were not only the only white people, we were the <laughs> only men, you know? And the rest of that crowd, 4,998 people, were women just like Mary. Yeah, They, they were women who'd had some non- Knox, you know, at one point on this record, uh, she says, you know, girls, I know you've got your troubles. I still have my troubles, too. And for all of her alleged uh, wedded bliss, much of this album is devoted to human failings, including her own, but Mm -hmm. mostly the men in her life. No one, apparently, this gets a little too Freudian for me. The track where she basically complains for seven minutes that nobody's ever measured up to her dad. Yeah, the As fa- I, I, father in you. Yeah, yeah. I, I could live without that. But I think people see themselves reflected in Mary J. Blige in a way that they don't with an Alicia Keys or a Beyonce Knowles. Blige is a
0: diva, but she's one of us. Yeah, and I've always loved her in, in concert more so than on album because that veneer, I always feel like there's a She's surrounded with these A list producers all the time, beginning with Puff Daddy at, yeah. at the very start of her career and, well, and worked her way up the listen line. Listen to
4: the roster on this record. You got Dr. Dre. You got Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Mm-hmm. You got Will I Am of Black Eyed Peas. And then you have the cameos. You have Jay Z. You have the ubiquitous Bono. You have Nina Simone <laughs> from Beyond the Grave. You yeah. have Raphael Sadiq. Anybody else, anybody else, I don't care, Alicia Keys, Beyonce Knowles, they would have been overshadowed by all of that production and cameo right. star power. Blige, she owns the room. I don't care if it's Bono next to her.
0: It doesn't matter. She's in charge. More so than on previous albums, I think the early records really set the template for her, and I think in recent years, she has been a little bit cowed by some of the production. Uh, I, I think it's a little too slick. And you see it in concert. My God, this is a lioness out there. Yeah. And, and and I think she's back to that mode on the breakthrough where the production's a little bit you know set back, and it's basically about her voice. And when, yeah. there's, when one Mary isn't enough... There's that multi-track choir of Mary's in the background to bounce off of, and it's a terrific sound. She just... You know, raises the goosebumps on my arm because the voice is so. You get the sense that she is in the moment all the time. There's she's a very never sexy like woman. a processed kind of feel to it. I think, uh, in a lot of ways, that song that she does with Raphael Sadiq, "I Found My Everything," is sort of her homage to Aretha Franklin. There's a very old school approach to the production in the, the, the live strings yeah. and and the orchestration. Uh, at the same time, we still have this singer who is a very contemporary voice singing about her passion, her pain, her pathos in a very real fashion. This is, I think, as good a record as Mary J. Blige has made. It's, yeah, I, I think it's right up there with her 92
4: debut, What's the 411? Uh, definitely a buy-it record as far as I'm concerned. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Buy-it record, The Breakthrough, and here's a little taste of it. Raphael Sadiq's production on I Found My Everything from Mary J. Blige's new record, The Breakthrough, on Sound Opinions. <gasps>
3: My everything you see?
4: Mary J. Blige. I found my everything from The Breakthrough on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio.
3: I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. We were shipwrecked together.
0: Every week on Sound Opinions, one of us puts a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox and pulls out a record we can't live without. And this week it's Jim's turn. Well, I'm going to bring it full circle to the top of the show, Mr. Cott, with a selection by the
4: Rolling Stones band. Although that's not the reason I decided to play a Stones tune. Carmel and I had a, a peaceful, quiet New Year's weekend where we had a mini Wes Anderson film festival. I, you know, Bottle Rocket was Wes Anderson, the director's first film, and he obviously didn't have much money for music because everything was fairly obscure until the big climatic scene at the end, which uses 2,000 man by the Rolling Stones. From what is generally considered the Rolling Stones' worst album, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, the 1967 poorly advised, some would say, foray into psychedelic rock. It's recorded in the wake of the Beatles doing Sgt. Peppers. Everybody said the Stones wanted to measure up. The Stones at that point were falling apart. Both Keith Richards and Brian Jones had been famously busted for drugs and were looking at serious time in prison in this period. It was a sad time for the Stones. Ian Stewart, their, their longtime keyboard player, always said that Satanic Majesties, well, A, he always called it that damn Satanic Majesties <laughs> album, and B, he referred to it as an album made, quote, under the influence of bail. <laughs> <laughs> so so you had this 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 haze of patchouli and pot smoke uh, on this album but I think the thing that that I love about this album besides the fact that there are great songs like 2000 man is the fact that it shows that the Stones were once human, you know, that they were very fallible even in in the height of their popularity when they were pretty much unbeatable from the beginning through 75 really, and I think that this album holds up much better than the reviews at the time you know, Rolling Stone Magazine founder Jan Wenner the world's biggest Jagger groupie said that it was the prototype of junk masquerading as meaningful, wrote it off the only time he's ever given this Stone this this is a man who gave the last Stones album five stars, (laughs) you know, who are you kidding that uh, Satanic Majesties, I think is great in retrospect because the Stones for all of their cynicism even when they were playing the patchouli love and flowers hippie game they could never really get rid of that sarcastic snide sneer that drove everything and you hear that in 2000 Man and I just also love the idea of the now grandfather if not great grandfather age Stones, once singing about my folks, they just don't understand me at all. (laughs) But uh, I I think this is a perfect Stones tune and, and a lost classic and the sort of song I would kill to see them do in concert again. 2,000 man from Their Satanic Majesty's Request on Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio.
0: That was 2,000 Man from the Rolling Stones, Jim Dirigatis' Desert Island jukebox pick. You know, we're going to stay in this mode next week because Donovan came by the studio. We had a
4: chat with him, and he was busted, actually, by the same, uh, <laughs> no, the same by, by, by the same ne- right.
0: nefarious London cop who, who, had, who had busted Keith Richards and Brian Jones. Right. Very cool. The hurdy-gurdy man. We were also pleased a couple of weeks ago to air some of the listeners' opinions on the air. And uh, we want to continue to do that, so give us a call anytime at 888-859-1800. Any sort of feedback you got, if you want us to jump off a bridge, tell us why, yeah. Uh, you disagree Co- with something we said on the show. <laughs> correct
4: our diction. <laughs> you know, fix the
0: facts. <laughs> yeah. uh, tell us we're full
4: of crap. Why do you guys have a show on public radio?
0: But before you do that, stop by at sunopinions.com and check out the footnotes to the show. Some really great work by a couple of our staff people here, uh, Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana, doing a brilliant job on that every week. If you don't understand a word that we said tonight, go to the footnotes. <laughs> they'll explain everything.
4: It's annotated. It's like the encyclopedia version. We have some other people to thank. Our executive producer, Tori, don't call me Norm Abrams Malatia. Still, still fixing that house on the south side, apparently. <laughs> Todd Bachman, our managing producer and director. Our longtime and much-beloved producer, Mr. Matt Spiegel. Eric Rudd, engineer, and we had a couple of special thanks this week to Joe DeSoe and
0: Mike McFall. Tune in next week to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio we